My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God, and today we are looking at Psalm 9, uh, another psalm of David, and I love this. The title of this psalm reads, To the Chief Musician. Now, remember, whenever you see capital C, capital M, Chief Musician, this is a psalm that David is writing to God. He is the chief musician that, that David is writing this psalm to, and it's to the tune of Death of the Son. A Psalm of David. David um, celebrates the help and goodness of God with an incredibly large vision for the nations in this psalm. Now, what's interesting is where this psalm fits within the numbering of the psalms. I'm just going to give you a little bit of uh, interesting information. Um, Derek Kidner, theologian, says this, from this point in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, up until Psalm 148, so from Psalm 9 to Psalm 148, the versions differ over the numbering of the Psalms. Since the Septuagint and the Vulgate, which was followed by the Roman Catholic Church, count Psalms 9 and 10 as a single poem, while the Protestant churches followed the Hebrew reckoning. So you might have a Bible with Psalm 9 and 10 are one, uh, or they are separate. Just interesting. Sometimes you want to know why. There's the why. They're both in there. <laughs> Just the numbering is different. Okay, so let's start off with Psalm 9, verse 1. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Oh, I love that. I love the way that that starts out. David recognizes that God is worthy of praise with his whole heart, not just a little bit. And he's, all of his affection should be directed towards God. Boyce says this, we do not praise God with our lips very much at all. And when we do, if we do, we praise him half-heartedly. It is more often true that Christians complain of how God has been treating them with their lips, carrying on excessively about their personal needs or desires, or even gossiping with their lips. <laughs> What what do you what do your lips use uh, for your communication with God? I will tell of all your marvelous works. David describes an important um, and often neglected way of praising God, which is tell of His marvelous works. What's He done? Remember and tell people the great things that God's already done for you in your life. I will be glad. I will rejoice in you. David describes the second way to praise God by simply finding. Joy in God and then expressing it. It's simply about choosing to rest in who God is and celebrate the goodness and greatness and kindness of God, not about whether you've got a trouble or not today. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. David's third way to praise God. Singing. Singing. The idea is to honour and celebrate the nature of God as the Most High. Sing. So many people say, I don't like to sing. I don't like to sing. I don't sing in church because I don't like to sing. And I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. How about you just sing? Because that's what we're meant to do. That that's in that's in 
Timothy, that's in the New Testament set up, sing spiritual songs and then receive teaching. It's in the Old Testament, the New, singing. When you get to heaven, you're going to be singing forever. You may not like singing now. You may as well just get used to it, okay? Just start singing. Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence, for you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked, and you have blotted out their name forever and ever. In the first two verses of this psalm, David describes some reasons for praising God. And they're always valid, no matter the circumstances of life. Now he comes up with a more specific circumstance that he's in right now. And he praises God for the way that the Most High has defeated his enemies. And he realizes that God has maintained his right and his cause. And David saw God move against David's enemies on the principle of right and wrong in a conflict. And God is not dispassionate about right and wrong. He does care. Uh, Guzik, understanding this should not make us automatically claim that God is on our side in battles or disputes. It should make us endeavor to be on God's side by rigorously conforming ourselves to his word. And I really do like that. You sat on the throne. You rebuked the nations, blotted out their name forever. David saw God in action among the nations and righteously judging the wicked. Verse 6, O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished, but the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. David now shifts his focus from speaking directly to the Lord, and now he's addressing the enemies that... uh, God, those ones whom God had defeated. And David assures them that their evil work of destruction is a futile effort because God is going to endure forever. Um, he knew, he knew that God would endure forever. I, I think sometimes we, we know that, but we forget it in the circumstances of life. And David says, God will be the one to administer judgment. For the peoples in uprightness. David looked forward to the ultimate rule of God over the nations uh, with his righteous judgment. Think about this. A thousand years after David, the apostle Paul quotes this exact line in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill. He shall judge the world in righteousness. Wow. Okay, verse 9. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. David was grateful here that God did more than just judge the wicked. He's also a refuge and a support to those who have been oppressed by the wicked. David understood that the help of God wasn't given just because God favoured some and didn't like others. It was because his people have relationship with him. They know your name. They have faith in him. Put their trust in you. They seek him, those who seek you. It's it's a very serious trial, Guzik says this, to the child of God to feel forsaken by God. There are particular times when we are likely to feel that the Lord has forsaken us, when we've sinned, when we face great trouble, when we have some great job to do, and when we feel that our prayers are going unanswered, yet we can find refuge in seeking God and in just knowing his name. I really like that. Verse 11. 
Sing praises to the Lord. Here we go. We're singing again. (laughs) Who dwells in Zion, declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. David encourages others to do what's already been done in this psalm. Praise the Lord and declare his good deeds to the people. Spurgeon, singing and preaching as means of glorifying God are here joined together. And it is remarkable that connected with all the revivals of gospel ministry, there has been a sudden outburst in the spirit of song. David here communicates something that's known amongst anybody who's who praises God. When you praise God and you lift up Jesus, it is natural for them to draw others into a similar praise. Why? Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Here's David talking about the same principle a thousand years before. Now, David then says, when he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. David called others to praise God for the same reasons that David had praised God earlier, which was because God is partisan on behalf of the oppressed and the humble, and he avenges their blood. Numbers chapter 35, uh, verses 33 to 34, tells us that the blood of the unavenged murdered pollutes the earth. The blood of Abel uh, spoke to God in Genesis chapter 4. The blood of Nabal in 2 Kings chapter 9. God has promised to avenge blood and remember the murdered. This is a promise. It reminds us God will avenge the blood of his persecuted people. Verse 13. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. David has just considered that God remembered the cry of the humble and now he wants God to remember him in this season of trouble that he's in. Consider my trouble. That I may tell people of your praise. God here is being appealed to by David to rescue him so that he could give God all the more praise and then he can more passionately rejoice in God's salvation. And the idea is that David has much more yet again than just his own benefit in his request to God. He is looking for a way to bring more glory to God. And David didn't see his rescue as the final goal. He saw God getting greater glory as the final goal. A huge difference. He says, I will rejoice in your salvation. Spurgeon said this. I love this. It is a good thing for the melancholy to become a Christian. It is an unfortunate thing for the Christian to become melancholy. If there is any man in the world that has a right to have a bright, clear face and a flashing eye, it is the man whose sins are forgiven him and who is saved with God's salvation. Amen, amen, amen. If you truly understand salvation, you will sing with all your heart and you won't care what anybody else thinks, not even yourself. You won't even care whether you think you sound good or not. You will just want to praise and tell other people of what God has done for you. Let's move on. Verse 15. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation. Selah. That's what we do. Meditation. I'm going to talk about that right at the end. David 
understood the triumph of God to be so complete that his enemies were going to be ensnared in the same trap that they had set for others. This is a constant principle of God that's displayed through the Bible and David recounts it time and time again, that even the best plans of those who are wicked will be used against them. Uh, Esau and Isaac plot against the purpose of God. They end up serving it. Joseph's brothers fight against the plan of God only to further it. Uh, Haman built uh, a uh, gallows for Mordecai and Esther and only to be executed upon it himself. And Judas betrayed Jesus and then becomes himself a fulfillment of prophecy. Clark says this, There is nothing that a wicked man does that is not against his own interest. He is continually doing himself harm. That's the irony, really. Sad, really. Sad irony. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The greatness of God is demonstrated by the way that he can use both plans and the efforts of the ungodly while also bringing righteous judgment upon them. An amazing, amazing God we serve. Verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. David, as he approaches the conclusion of this psalm, considers the end of the wicked, which is their ultimate destruction in hell. And he talks about forgetting all the nations that forget God. What, what do sinners forget about God? Guzik says this, Man forgets the infinite majesty and the glory of God. Man forgets the mercies of God. Man forgets the laws of God. Man forgets the presence of God. Man forgets the justice of God. Why does the sinner forget? Man forgets God because the thought of God makes man afraid. Man forgets God because the thought of God doesn't entertain him enough. Man forgets God because the thought of God makes it hard to carry on in sin. Spurgeon, the forgetters of God are far more numerous than the profane or the profligate. And according to the very forceful expression of the Hebrew, the nethermost hell will be the place into which all of them shall be hurled headlong. Forgetfulness seems a small sin, but it brings eternal wrath upon the man who lives and dies in it. <laughs> very poignant words right there. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. David expresses a wonderful contrast here. The wicked try to forget God, but the needy and the poor are not forgotten. Uh, it reminds us that people who are poor and needy sometimes feel like they have been forgotten, but God promises that they will not always feel this way and that their expectation will be changed when they realise that God will meet their needs and that they actually haven't been forgotten. Now, again, uh, quoting Guzik today, there are few more things painful than feeling forgotten and feeling disappointed. To those in such pain, God makes these wonderful promises that they shall not always be forgotten and their expectation will not perish. You shall not always be forgotten in the word, so keep reading. You shall not always be forgotten from the pulpit, so keep hearing and listening. You shall not always be forgotten in your service, so keep serving. You expected to have peace in Jesus, in him you will have it. You expected to triumph over sin, in him you will triumph. You expected to get out of trouble, in him you will be delivered. 
you expected to grow strong in faith, in him you will be strengthened. Moving on, verse 19. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Ah. Previously in the psalm, David has expressed a firm confidence in God's judgment over the wicked and his vindication of the righteous. But David didn't allow this expectation to make him passive or just fatalistic in regard to how God's plan was going to work. Instead, he cries out, Arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. He expresses confidence in God's judgment of the wicked. But it didn't lead him to hate mankind. Uh, his hope was that the display of God's judgment would actually teach the nations their proper place before God to be but men, and then they would see his glory and bow down and worship him the same way that he was. And that's that place of humility that David had uh, of always understanding his place before God. Always understanding. Uh, it was a prayer for God to reach the nations through the display of his judgment, not to hurt them. So my observation today is the interesting placement of the words selah in two passages at the end of verse 16 and the verse of end of verse 20. And whenever you see selah in a psalm, it just means pause, reflect, and meditate, wonder, think about it. So I want to know what you observe as you pause, you reflect, and you meditate over what God revealed to you when you think about this psalm. When you get to the end of it, it says Selah. So what pause, meditate, reflect, think. What 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 do you get out of this? That's the whole point of Selah. Not just to read the Bible and be done. Press stop, done, okay, move on. Listen, done now, checkbox. No. It's listen, be taught, and now observe and now work out what you're gonna do with it. Heavenly Father, help us to reflect. Help us to pause and listen to what you want to speak to us as an action step from listening to these wonderful words written by David 3,000 years ago. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.